Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, is dedicated to the victims of white supremacy in America, and in particular, the thousands of Black people who were lynched. It's a striking open-air pavilion with hundreds of suspended steel columns, engraved with thousands of names. It's important to note that a lynching isn't always a hanging. It's any killing where a mob takes the law into its own hands. The opening of the memorial and a nearby museum last year drew big crowds and worldwide attention. The Legacy Museum and Memorial provides a mirror to face some of the ugliness in this country's past. For there's no way we can heal until we first acknowledge and address our wounds. This is what this memorial sets out to do. Reporter Stephanie Stokes came here a few months after the memorial opened. It's an emotional experience. It's pretty overwhelming. You pass through all of these columns with the names of victims of lynching, and you you grasp the immensity of this part of our, our country's history. Stephanie reports on inequality and racial discrimination for public radio station WABE in Atlanta. So when she found the names of lynching victims from Atlanta, some of the information was pretty familiar to her. There are a bunch of names that all correspond to this one event that took place in 1906. They call it the Atlanta Race Riot. But really, it was a white mob that killed 25 black people. But after that, I actually see a name I had never heard of before. It said Thomas Finch and then the date, 1936. And I look around at the memorial, and there's no information. Why no information on Thomas? The group behind the memorial, the Equal Justice Initiative, they did a bunch of research to figure out which names belonged at the memorial. But they haven't made that research public yet. I do know there are a few different lynching databases created decades ago that the memorial used. But, you know, in general, you have to understand these cases did take place quite a long time ago. So Stephanie dug into the newspaper archives. She found a brief story in the Atlanta Constitution, which catered to a white audience in the 1930s. It says that he was accused of rape by a white woman, and police picked him up. He tried to escape, and he reached for an officer's gun, and that officer fired three times. That is a story that I've heard so many times, both historically but also in modern-day America. A, a suspect reaches for an officer's gun, and then the officer ends up shooting the suspect. Yeah, that's why I wanted to find more information. And I did, um, in black newspapers from the time. Their stories actually questioned the police narrative. Then I find this unpublished investigation in a local archive here. It said that Thomas Finch was lynched by the Atlanta police. So even though this story happened in the 30s, it feels really relevant to today. I mean, I'm I'm a big believer in understanding what happened in the past so that we can navigate the present, the future. So you going back looking into the past, how do you do that? I didn't just want to find the details of what took place. I wanted to find the people who are around now, the descendants of those involved. And the first person I reach is Thomas Finch's niece, and her name is Joyce Finch Morris. Hi, Stephanie. My name is Joyce Finch Morris, and I am returning your call. This is related to my uncle, Thomas Finch, 
Joyce doesn't sound surprised to hear from me. A student at Northeastern University had contacted her about Thomas Finch's case the year before. We set up a time to go over the research I've gathered. She lives in her childhood home in Atlanta's Grove Park neighborhood. It's an old stone schoolhouse. Hi, Hi. how are you? Good, are you Joyce? Oh, yes, I am. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Come here. The walls inside are decorated with paintings she's collected over the years, mostly by African-American artists and mementos from her travels around the world. Joyce is dressed carefully. She's formal, a little subdued, but she doesn't hesitate to answer any questions about her life or her family, although she says there's a lot she doesn't know. She tells me she moved back to Atlanta only a few years ago. Do you like Atlanta? Not really. <laughs> um, I, I left Atlanta because I really did not like it. Uh, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and when I would go to other places, when I would go to D.C. or go to New York or L.A., I didn't see some of the restrictions that I experienced here. Restrictions like having to use the back door at the movie theater. Joyce's family was part of the city's black middle class, but the realities of segregation were still there. And she says in places like New York, she just thought there was more culture. Uh, the theater, the museums. What I wanted out of New York, Atlanta just didn't have. She moved to New York in her 20s and started a career in finance and community development. She ended up away from Atlanta for 50 years. Today, Joyce regrets she never got around to asking her parents for more of their history. She remembers when she was young, she tried to learn about her dad's brother, Thomas. He died more than a decade before she was born. But it was not something that was discussed. And I, like I said, I couldn't understand. Um, too painful, perhaps. Her mom was the only one who talked about her uncle's death. My mother said that he um, was lynched because he was dating someone white. But that's all I knew. I didn't know any details about how and who did it. I open up my laptop on her dining room table, and I realize I have more information about this part of the family's history than Joyce. We start scrolling through the documents. Now, what year was this? Do you know? 1936. Oh, my goodness. We look at the report I found by a civil rights group called the Commission on Interracial Cooperation. The commission's work isn't widely known today, but in the early part of the 20th century, it fought against lynching, along with groups like the NAACP, although the commission's leaders were mainly white. Can you make it just a little larger? Yeah. The report says Thomas Finch was an orderly at Grady, Atlanta's oldest public hospital. One day, a white patient named Ozella Smith accused him of taking her into a closet and raping her. Thomas's white coworkers didn't believe the assault could have happened, for one, the closet where it allegedly took place was an earshot of doctors' offices. A small closet. According to the commission, this is what happened next. Two Atlanta police officers came to the hospital to find out where Thomas lived. But they didn't go to his home right away. They waited hours until 3 in the morning. When they showed up, they weren't alone. The Finch family noticed several other people, it's not clear who, standing behind the two officers. Oh my goodness. They arrested Thomas, but never took him to the police station. Instead, about an hour later, they brought him to Grady Hospital. He had been beaten and shot. I show Joyce her uncle's death certificate. So you can see the cause of death here. Gunshot wounds of the neck, chest, and abdomen. He was 27. Yeah. Wow. The commission's report concludes that Thomas Finch was wrongfully accused of rape and then lynched. But there's another important detail. I show Joyce a newspaper story from more than a decade after Thomas's death. It's about the Atlanta police officer who shot him, claiming it was in self-defense. His name? Samuel Roper. This is in 1949. Oh, he was a, a Klansman. The article says Roper became the national leader of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, so I guess that shouldn't surprise anybody. Joyce seems calm, but I see her scrunching her eyebrows at times, trying to make sense of all this. Then her thoughts shift to the present. The question is, where can this all lead? I mean, uh, could he be exonerated after the fact? I have no idea. Like, as a family member, is that something that you would want? If he was innocent, of course. 
Yes. This is a new question that I hadn't thought of. What would it take to set the record straight in a case that happened 80 years ago? I tell Joyce I'll let her know if I uncover anything more. I go back into the city records. I check notes from the police committee from the week he died, board minutes from Grady Hospital. Nothing about Thomas Finch or the commission's investigation into his death. It doesn't seem like the report was even made public. One of the only experts I reach who has any record of Thomas Finch is E.M. Beck. Uh, Great. Well, do you want to start by introducing yourself? Okay. I am E.M. Beck, professor emeritus of sociology and a Josiah Meggs distinguished uh, teaching professor emeritus at the University of Georgia. He spent the last few decades developing a lynching database. I ask him why the city never followed up on the commission's findings. I know most rural lynchings never got a thorough review, but I also thought, you know, this is Atlanta. This is the city of Atlanta. Couldn't something happen there that might not be able to happen elsewhere in the South? Well, I mean, you think about it this way. It's all white power structure. And so you've got to ask, what is it in their interest to try to pursue these things? And especially if it involves the police. And I would say that they have no interest in it. The police involvement apparently made the NAACP uneasy, too. In a letter, the group's director, Walter White, didn't want to call Thomas's case a lynching, at least at first. Professor Beck says the history of police and lynchings is murky. He can think of maybe 30 cases like Thomas's. There could be more. The problem is the only written records are the officers' own reports. I mean, the one thing that we know, at least after the revival of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1915 is that one of the things that the Klan did was try to recruit policemen. Policemen like Samuel Roper. I learned he wasn't the only Atlanta officer loyal to the Klan in the 1930s. This tape is from an oral history interview with former Atlanta Police Chief Herbert Jenkins. Well, I almost say that most of the members at one time, most of the members of the police department were members of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, the Atlanta Police Department was full of Klan members in the 1930s. It gets me thinking about other police shootings from the time, like the officer who was with Roper the night Thomas died. I see that he killed at least five black men in his career. In one case, he used a machine gun. But so many years later, there's no evidence to prove these were anything other than officer-involved shootings. That's what makes Thomas Finch's case stand out, as Professor Beck says. I think the case there of Thomas Finch, it becomes, uh, especially with the uh, report done by the uh, CIC, the Commission on Interracial Cooperation, in fact, suggests that, uh, you know, yeah, he, was, he would fall under the definition of what a, a lynching would be. The Commission's investigation into Thomas's death is the most reliable information I may ever have. But my reporting isn't done. There were two other people directly connected to this case. And I want to talk to their families. The first person Stephanie tracks down is the relative of Samuel Roper, the man who killed Thomas Finch. If we go far enough back, we all have ancestors that did things good and bad. That's next on Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the longstanding problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. 
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. We're looking at the killing of a black man named Thomas Finch that happened in Atlanta in 1936. Police claimed they acted in self-defense, but a local civil rights group determined he was lynched. Reporter Stephanie Stokes picks up the story of the officer who shot Finch. It isn't that hard to trace the life and career of Samuel Roper. He served in the Atlanta Police Department, then moved up the ladder, way up the ladder, to lead the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, making him the state's top law enforcement officer. After that, in the late 1940s, he took over the national leadership of the Ku Klux Klan. I look up Roper's obituary, and from there, I'm able to find his grandson, Kent Giles. We talk a few times. He's never heard of Thomas Finch, and he's reluctant to do an interview. But after he goes over my research, he agrees, and I drive to his house in Marble Hill, a rural area north of Atlanta. Kent is ready for me. He's arranged all the documents I gave him on his dining room table, along with a small pad where he's written down notes. He's friendly, but when I turn on the recorder, the room feels a little tense. So you were kind of nervous about being misrepresented in this story. I was curious, would you want to talk about that at all? Well, I I just think that there's always a risk by association. I think most people understand that none of us are our ancestors. If we go far enough back, we all have ancestors that did things good and bad. Kent says he knew his grandfather. Roper lived until he was 90. They would talk about his service in the First World War and his career in law enforcement. And eventually, the Klan. Kent says his grandfather only joined to get ahead in politics. He remembers asking about the violence the hate group is known for. And I said, you know, when you were head of the KKK, which was actually, I think he was a Grand Imperial Wizard, maybe a total of a year to 18 months, so it wasn't very long. He said that he never condoned lynching. And newspapers report him as saying that, you know, we will consider our political activism for white supremacy, but we will not, you know, condone violence. I saw an article where Roper said the Klan did not condone violence. But I tell Kent about another article, one where the Klan was accused of bombing the homes of black families in Atlanta. Roper was in charge then. Kent says his grandfather blamed that kind of violence on fringe members. He compares his grandfather to Georgia Governor Eugene Talmadge. He was a Klan sympathizer who, by the way, fought to keep black people from voting. Now, there's no question their politics was segregationist. Uh, It was white supremacist. Um, They were staunchly anti-communist. Most of the things that, that I understood about them and about that era were political things. So what does Kent make of Thomas Finch's case then? He goes through the commission's report point by point. Yeah, it's it's a lot of detail, but... He says he agrees with the commission that there are aspects of the case that seem off, like the police arresting Thomas at 3 a.m. While the commission saw all this as a police-sponsored lynching, Kent comes to a very different conclusion. What I read into this event is that the police were concerned that there was going to be a lynching or some kind of activity either by the accuser's family or some racist group in town. In other words, Kent believes his grandfather was trying to protect Thomas Finch from a mob, not conspiring with one. Then he thinks Thomas tried to escape and reached for his grandfather's gun. This is what the officers claimed at the time. Still, Kent says he can totally see why others might side with the commission's account. I tell him, yeah. For a lot of people, right, if they hear that there was a case that a, from the 1930s that a civil rights group said was probably a lynching, and then they hear that the shooter involved was later mm-hmm. the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the South, they're probably going to feel pretty certain about what happened, that it was a lynching, mm-hmm. right? I mean, would you tell those people that they're wrong? Well, I think that, I I think all of us have to be honest and say we're viewing the world through certain filters. Um, So I would say to them, you know, I'm viewing this through as much truth as I can find, which there's a lot of missing pieces, uh, and and through the filters of, of a man I knew. The only thing I can say truthfully is I don't know what really happened, and I don't think 
we're ever going to really know what happened. Thomas Finch died more than 80 years ago. None of the witnesses are alive. Still, there's one more person I'm interested in, Ozella Smith. She's the white woman who told police that Thomas Finch raped her. I have a little trouble tracking her after the case. She died in the 1980s with a different first name. I managed to locate her niece, Dolores Sharp. She agrees to meet me at a library near her home in Peachtree City, south of Atlanta. Like Kent Giles, Dolores is cautious. We spend a couple of hours going over documents before she's okay to talk on the record. Dolores says she grew up around her aunt. She saw her any time she went over to her grandma's house. Ozella Smith lived there. She never married. When did you first hear the story that I called you about? Oh, I was a young girl when um, I was told that my aunt was raped by a black person at the hospital. Uh, I never really knew a lot of details and because it was taboo to talk about, you didn't bring it up. And and I, I don't know why I, I, I was mature in a sense that I felt like maybe it was something that I, I didn't need to plunder into. She says the assault was just too painful for her family to talk about. Oh, I think it was maybe a major uh, event that permanently scarred the heart and the mind of uh, the members that were closest to my aunt. I can hear the conviction in her voice when she talks about this family history. So I'm not surprised when Dolores is disturbed when she reads the commission's conclusion that Thomas Finch was wrongfully accused. The implication is that her aunt lied about the assault. When you hear something contrary to what you grew up believing, you might even go on a defense of that, or you might take the attitude that she was just completely discarded, that her, what happened to her was completely irrelevant. I have a lot more questions for Dolores, but we're interrupted. A Peachtree City librarian motions through the glass of the study room. Our time is up. Dolores asks me if we can reschedule, but weeks go by and she never does agree to another meeting. This isn't what I expected to hear from the other families. Somehow, after all my research, I thought there might be consensus on how we should look at Thomas's case. But there isn't. I talked to Catherine Meeks. She's a former African-American studies professor who now directs the Absalom Center for Racial Healing in Atlanta. I, I've realized that I was just so naive going into this that I, I was so surprised to have disagreement about something that mm -hmm. happened 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if we can't agree about that, like, what can we agree, agree about we don't now? We agree about the history. We don't agree about the written history of the United States. Professor Meek says lynching in particular is a point of shame. That's one piece of the history that we've tried the hardest to ignore. We'll talk about slavery. We'll talk about Jim Crow. We'll talk about Reconstruction. But we don't really want to talk about lynching. Many places in Georgia still don't want to talk about lynchings, even though there were more lynchings here than in any other state except Mississippi. There are exceptions. A couple of years ago, I drove out to a small city called LaGrange, where the police chief had called a community meeting. 200 people crowded into a Methodist church. Chief Lou Deckmar spoke about Austin Calloway, who was killed in 1940 when a mob stormed the city jail. I sincerely regret and denounced the role our police department played in Austin's lynching, both through our action and our inaction. And for that, I'm profoundly sorry. It should never have happened. His comments received a standing ovation and drew national attention. But in Thomas Finch's case, it doesn't seem like authorities have any plans to apologize. I let the city of Atlanta and the police department know about what I found. I sent emails, even registered letters. Would they acknowledge his case as a lynching? Atlanta's police chief, Erica Shields, wouldn't talk to me. The office of Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms only gave a short written statement. It says the city has no official record of Thomas's case, but there is no denying that Atlanta, quote, still wears scars from the deep wounds inflicted during that dark chapter of history. And this surprises me too. Atlanta's very different now. The all-white power structure is gone. 
It's had black mayors for decades, and the police force is majority black. But when it comes to Thomas Finch's case, they still have little to say. I ask Catherine Meeks about this. Well, I, I just think it's denial of the history. I think it's they, they don't want to take responsibility. They may even be worried that if they say something, they will be admitting to some culpability that might leave them in legal trouble. Meek says it doesn't matter if the people in power have changed. The institutions still need to recognize what happened. It's not as important for me for somebody to go stand up in front of a microphone and say, I'm sorry, as it is for them to really be awake, to really understand, and to really do something. But if you're doing all of that, you probably don't mind saying you're sorry. For now, the most public acknowledgement of Thomas Finch's death is still in another state, the place where I first came across his name, the Memorial for Lynching Victims in Montgomery, Alabama. Several months after we first met, I joined Joyce at the memorial. She's on a civil rights tour with a couple of friends. We walked down into the lower level of the main pavilion, past a wall with streaming water. Hundreds of steel columns shaped like coffins are hanging above us. They're organized by the counties where the lynchings happened. Joyce is moving quickly. She seems anxious, almost excited. We find the column that includes Atlanta. It's so high above us that Joyce strains to make out the names of the victims etched on the column. Can you see it? I really can't. And actually, it might be good because... I don't want to start crying. <laughs> so my photographer takes a picture of Thomas's name and enlarges it on the screen of his camera. So just to give you context, uh-huh. it's the bottom right uh-huh. here. Thomas Finch. She and her friends stare at the image. Then Joyce approaches me. I'm really reserved most of the time when I hold my feelings in. I never knew my uncle. I can pass this along to my family members, the ones who are still alive, and to my grandkids. And she pauses, like she's taking in what's around her. Her uncle's name among more than 4,000 other African Americans who were lynched in this country. I mean, this is history. I mean, he's memorialized. <laughs> and he's not forgotten. I didn't even know him. You know, really didn't. But it's important. We step outside the pavilion and see another set of the columns lined up on the ground. They're duplicates. The people behind the memorial want to send them to the counties where the lynchings happened, sort of like historical markers. In Atlanta, there's a private group working to make that happen. It would finally bring Thomas Finch public recognition in the city where he was killed more than 80 years ago. After spending all this time on his case, I can't say how that effort will be received. Stephanie Stokes is a reporter with public radio station WABE. Her story was edited by David Lewis, investigations editor at WNYC, and produced as a part of a collaboration with APM Reports. Examining America's darkest chapters can be hard because, well, truthfully, America likes to hide its sin. That was certainly the case with one woman's search for the truth about her grandfather's execution in Mississippi. Hi. Yes, we wanted to come in and see the traveling electric chair. That's next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Joyce Finch Morris never got all the answers she was after about the killing of her uncle. But she did get some closure. And that's what Bridget McGee was looking for, too. Her grandfather, Willie McGee, was put to death in 1951 after being convicted of raping a white woman. On the night of his execution, close to a thousand people gathered around the courthouse in the small town of Laurel, Mississippi. A local radio station was there broadcasting the event live. The case was widely covered when it happened. But after the execution, the story of Willie McGee was largely forgotten. Some 60 years later, Bridget McGee teamed up with Radio Diaries to search for the true story. Here's Willie McGee and the traveling electric chair. First broadcast back in 2010. This is a case that has gone through six years of law courts. Certainly it's a scene that nobody likes to see, the execution of any human being. 
But when it becomes necessary, it must be done. Here earlier this evening, we got a glimpse of the electric chair. Indeed, it was a frightening thing to be sure. Growing up, I didn't know anything about the story. Nothing. It was never talked about in our house. My name is Bridget McGee Robinson. I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I am the granddaughter of Willie McGee. On the grounds of the Laurel Courthouse, they wait for the news that Willie McGee has been executed for his crime. I remember I was about 12 or 13 years old. I was with my mom. We were cleaning out her room. She was under her mattress, and there was these newspaper articles inside a plastic bag. And there was a photograph. And so I said, Who, who's this man? And she said, that's your grandfather. And I asked her, well, what happened to him? But she snatched it from me and told me to put it back. She says, you wouldn't understand that right now. So I let it go for years. And basically on my mother's deathbed is when she began to talk to me about it. And she told me to find out the truth. I told her, okay. Welcome to Mississippi. I haven't been in Mississippi since I was a little girl, but here I am. I came here to find out what happened to my grandfather. I want to know the good and I also want to know the bad. I want to hear it from the blacks. I want to hear it from the whites. I don't know where my journey will lead, but I know where it has to start. We're walking up the steps of the Jones County Courthouse. This is the courthouse. Yes, in recent I met up with a man named Harvey Warren who grew up in Laurel, Mississippi. This is the location where the electric chair was brought and Willie McGee was executed. Do you know of anyone that may talk about it or? Even today, most people do not want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think you have to put in, in your grasp of what took place is the climate. Everything was segregated. That was our side of the tracks, which was mostly across the GMO, and then that was the white folks' side of the tracks, which is west of the Southern Railroad. And lives were lived that way. And I knew, even as a six-year-old, where I could go and where I could not go. And Willie McGee, obviously, we knew that he had gone on the wrong side of the tracks. Laurel Leader called. November 5th, 1945. Willie McGee, 30-year-old Laurel Negro, was arrested in connection with the assault of a white woman, which occurred at her residence early Friday morning. My name is Ann Sanders. I'm a native of Laurel, Mississippi, and I covered the first Willie McGee trial for the Laurel Leader Call newspaper. It was just unheard of, a black man raping a white woman. I mean, the fact that he came into a white woman's house and raped her, it just incensed everybody. It really did. The rumor got out that they were going to get him out of the jail and were going to lynch him. So when he came for the trial, they brought him in a National Guard truck for his protection. My name's John Schwarzfeger. My father was the district attorney and a prosecutor of Willie McGee. The truth of the matter is that Willie McGee was going to be convicted. You had 12 white males on the jury who have to make a decision. Are we going to believe the white lady or are we going to believe the black man? When Mrs. Hawkins testified, she said that she had a baby about three months old. And her husband had gone up into the living room to go to sleep. And uh, Willie McGee had come in got into the bed and put a knife to the baby's throat and said, if you don't, you know, agree, I will kill your baby. So she, of course, couldn't do anything else. And Willie McGee, he did not defend himself during that whole trial. I never heard him utter a single word. Of course, he was scared to death. And uh, I noticed the chair was wet. Pants were wet, and there was a puddle under the chair. He had to wet himself. The decision was real quick. The jury stayed out only a few minutes. The judge told him, Willie McGee, your sentence is to be electrocuted. 
Can you hear me, Adela? Okay, well, I'm calling you and I got you on the recorder because I'm taping this information. Okay, and Della, say your name and who you are. Go ahead. My name is Della Marie McGee Johnson. And you are? Willie McGee's oldest daughter. So, Aunt Della, when you first heard about what happened to Granddaddy, you, Mama, Aunt Gracie, Uncle Valero, you know, when they first came to you guys and say he'd been arrested, do you remember that? My Aunt Della, she's the only child of Willie McGee left. And she said, my mama told me the whole story of what happened with the alleged victim and my grandfather. I was told that they had been going together. And then when they finally got caught, they accused them of rape. Did they say how long they, they had been dating or going together? No, I don't know if it was years or what. But back in the South, you know, black men can fool with no white women. But the white men is the food with the black women. So, well, you know, I'm a researching all this information. You think I'm opening up a can of worms? <laughs> <laughs> all right, I love you. All right, love you too. All right, bye bye. There he is, the white view and the black view of what took place with Willie McGee. Blacks, for the most part, we understood that Willie did not rape that woman. He was in a relationship with this woman. And with Willie McGee being self-confident, you know, and good-looking, pretty sure about himself, he was too bold to just, once they got a whiff of it, to leave town, just run away, go to Detroit someplace. He was going to remain here, you know, and that was the result. I'm interviewing all these people and reading letters, newspaper articles, the court documents, but I'm still missing some things. I would love to speak with Willette Hawkins, the alleged victim, but she died a long time ago and her family does not want to talk about this. They don't want to bring this up anymore. Come in. Okay. Come on in. Sit down. I am here at the home of Raymond Horn, who was a young reporter for the Lower Leader Call at the time of the execution. I just kind of wonder, you know, after what sixty years almost, why this is so revived. I'm doing it because I want some history. Mm -hmm. I'm like the family historian. I can be very sympathetic with it because I'm a historian of our family, and I believe in that kind of business. But. I've discovered, especially in family histories, that usually there are some wonderful things that you find and some very bad things that you find. Now, one of his defenses was that it was consensual. Did you hear that? Right. That it was consensual. That is one of the craziest arguments that can be made. But hearing that it was consensual, it wouldn't be no different than a black woman sneaking around going with a white man. It happened all the time. Personally, in my lifetime, I was never aware of a white woman that had a consensual relationship with a black man. I'd never heard of it. I don't find it plausible at all. But there's no way to say this was the way it was because the parties that knew are deceased. There's no way to know, period. Laurel Leader Call, December 27, 1945. The case of Willie McGee, Negro, convicted of raping a white woman, will be appealed to the state Supreme Court. The fight to save the life of Willie McGee has been taken over by the newly formed Civil Rights Congress. A case like that sometimes becomes a symbol. My name is Liz Abzug. My mother was Bella Abzug, former congresswoman from New York and she was one of the defense lawyers in the Willie McGee case. You know, coming into a small town in rural Mississippi, you know, these communists left these northern Jews. People were kind of in disbelief. You know, it was like, why is she here? What's her name? Bella Abdul. She come down here to make sure he had a good trial, and sometimes she was just a downright nuisance. I mean, you tell her something, and she... Why do you know that? Well, why do you know that? She just thought he was being railroaded, and she took it all the way to the Supreme Court to stay the execution. 
New York Times, April 1, 1951. Several thousand demonstrators paraded in Times Square against the execution of Willie McGee. Several large groups chanted, Jim Crow must go, free Willie McGee. One black man and one white woman in a little old town, back then probably 20,000 people. I don't know why this one struck a fire, but it, it blew. Some very well-known figures became involved. William Faulkner, Albert Einstein. There were even leaflets dropped over soldiers who were fighting the Korean War to let them know about Willie McGee. It became more of a cause. And I think Mr. McGee got lost in the magnitude of all of it. His case covered five years and five months and involved three trials, six stays, and three state Supreme Court refusals. And that was it. That was it. The Mississippi Correctional Officers Academy. Hi. Yes, we wanted to come in and see the traveling electric chair. Yes, ma'am, but it's been here a long time. We've huh. had it a long time. Long time. But it's over in that front lot. Okay, thank you. Mississippi used to have what they called a traveling electric chair. They would take it from town to town. They would set it up in the courthouse, electrocute the person, pack it up, and take it to the next spot. Then we come around the corner, and there is this electric chair, not on display, just sitting in a corner with some baseball trophies. <laughs> it was not what I expected at all. Are we sure this is the right one? I thought the electric chair would look like... I don't know, something made of metal with a head thing that comes off on your head or something, or it's just a wooden rocking chair is what it looks like. Chair that somebody would sit on their porch and watch the cars go by. Who in their right mind created this thing? I don't know, this is just it. I don't want to record anymore. I'm sure that you have heard over both radio stations, WFOR and WAML, that all channels open to Willie McGee to save his life have now been exhausted, and the execution is to take place here this evening. I went up that night to watch the execution, and the crowd was already gathering. There were hundreds of people all over the place. The weather was good. It was a nice night because it wasn't too hot and it wasn't too cold. People were visiting with each other and, you know, talking passing time away. I think the majority of the crowd is now over here on this side of the courthouse where they can see and hear the power unit for the state of Mississippi's portable electric chair. The execution was broadcast on the radio. And I'll never forget to this day as the announcer mentioned some young boy who had climbed up a tree. We note that there's a boy over here in a tree climbing ever higher into the branches. And was looking inside like the window, window where Mr. McGee was going to be executed. It's now straight up of 12 o'clock, and certainly there can be no more than two minutes left to go. And I think perhaps the best thing we could do is just hang this mic over and pick up the grind of that generator so that we'll be sure and pick it up. Jim, if you're listening, you might jack our gain up a little bit. Gentlemen, we just assume that that last surge was the final few thousand volts of electricity that met the end of Willie McGee. Okay, Granville, thank you very much. Certainly WAML and WFOR intended no sensationalism in this. It was simply that it was a news story, and we wanted to cover it as best we possibly could. So thank you all very much for listening. This is Jack Dix then returning you to your respective local studios. Willie McGee's body was uh, taken to Pete Christen's funeral home, and my mother and father took me over there. And I knew what I was going there for, you know. It was like a business that had to be taken care of. And you go in there and you view the body, and I did not close my eyes. I did not close my eyes because that was a specific message that my daddy wanted me to get. And that message was, 
you do not get connected with white girls. You see what happened to Willie McGee. And I understood that. And, uh, you know, my daddy let me see it long enough to get the message and then took me back home. After his execution, everybody pretty well washed their hands. That was the end of it. They said, we've suffered. The city has suffered. We're glad it's over. Let's forget it. The blacks and whites didn't talk about it between them. Even today, none of the blacks I've had that helped me through the years, we never mentioned it. They believed he was innocent, and the whites believed he was guilty. Simple as that. It's always going to be that way. And uh, it was just not a good thing to argue about it. There's one more person I really need to speak with. I am going now to meet John Schwartzfeger. His dad prosecuted my grandfather back in 1951. He was the one who basically sent my grandfather to the lecture chair. So we came up to his house and I was very nervous. And he opened up the door and he, him and his wife. Yeah, so nice to meet you. And they looked at me and he hugged me. Y'all just go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Well, I, I remember the night of the execution very well. We were all standing in the kitchen, and uh, my father reached up in the cabinet and got a pint of uh, bourbon, and he took the fifth of whiskey, hid it inside his coat, and when he got to the courthouse, he told the sheriff that he wanted to see Willie McGee alone in a room, just the two of them, and they sat and they talked while Mr. McGee drank the whiskey and my father asked him said uh, did you or did you not rape Mrs. Hawkins were you guilty and uh, he got his answer and my father never divulged it to anyone else and I'm not going to divulge it now I wouldn't want you to go against your father's wishes but I still want to know as much history as I can about my grandfather I'm not looking for him to be wrong, nor I'm trying to find out if he was right, but it sure would make me feel better to know. I, I, I certainly appreciate what you're saying, but we have to take into consideration there was a pint of bourbon involved. I mean, this man was facing death in a matter of an hour or so, and, and what a person would say at that time especially if they had been drinking. I just don't think it's fair to repeat them. But I also know that a drunk speaks a sober mind. And at that point in time, what did he have to lose anyway? I, I wish I wouldn't have told you. Now, I, mean, I really do. Because as much as I know that everybody wants me to say, he said, yes, he did it, or no, he didn't do it, is I can't say that. I'm not going to say that. To keep rehashing something that happened 60 years ago can't possibly bring about any good now. But me as a granddaughter, I'm here to get information because there's another generation ahead of me that carries the McGee name now. And they don't even know any of the history of what happened. So that's, that's my place. Bridget, I just, I certainly have a great deal of compassion for your family. I mean, none of y'all did anything. I, I, I'll give you your answer because I think you're entitled to it. But I'm going to do it for you. Off the record, alone. Is that fair enough? That's fair. All right. How you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm Bobby Bender. Hi, Bobby. All right. Um, we're trying to locate where my grandfather could be buried, where his body could be laid. If they were buried during that time frame, they would be in this location right out here somewhere. You know, but there are a lot of grave sites out there. The markers have been knocked off, and all there is is just like a little indentation in right. the ground to right. show that there's a body that's buried there. We mind if I just look at the church? 
So you're saying anything that's unmarked could be Willie McGee's gravesite? Yes. For all I know, I could be standing on top of his grave. Who knows? Things are never as clear-cut as we want them to be. The words that my grandfather said that night before his execution, I've been keeping those words a secret. But recently, John Schwarzfeger has given me permission to share them. The prosecutor asked my grandfather as they were drinking, did you have sex with Willette Hawkins? And my grandfather looked up at him and said, yes, sir. But she wanted it just as much as I did. How do I feel about those words? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't think we will ever know the total truth, truth, truth. But I know what I believe, and that's my truth. And so when my kids and my grandkids, my nephews and my great-nephews come to me and ask me who was my great-grandfather, I'll be able to tell them. This is the story of Willie McGee. That was Bridget McGee. She worked with Radio Diaries on that story, which first aired back in 2010. That story was produced by Joe Richmond and Samara Freemark of Radio Diaries, with help from Ben Shapiro, plus two of our own, Reveal producer Anayansi Diaz-Cortez and senior editor Deb George. Unfortunately, this is Deb's last week with Reveal. She's leaving us to return to NPR, and they are so lucky to get her. And we are going to miss her deeply. Best of luck, and I pray that there will be many collaborations in the future. Our show this week was edited by Michael Montgomery with help from Taki Telenitis. Special thanks to Susanna Capilouto of WABE in Atlanta and Chris Worthington of APM Reports. That's the investigative and documentary unit of American Public Media. Our production manager is Moende Inahosa. Original score and sound design by the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Najib Amini and Amy Mustafa. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reeve and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine D. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.